Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word has to say so we can know what to believe. Rather than being on an I'm right quest, we want to be on a truth quest. What does God's Word say and why do I believe it? Uh, We look at questions through the light of Scripture. If you have any questions, go ahead and submit them into the comment section. Write the word question in front of it and then reread it a couple of times. Make sure it makes sense before you submit it. This is our first Q&A of the new year. Uh, Really good to have you here. Uh, We're going to get right into our first question, which was a question that was previously submitted on the podcast. And it has to do with why are the Dead Sea Scrolls so important. Uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947 in a place called Qumran, Israel. It's believed that they were hidden by the Essenes in the revolt of 66 AD, the Jews against the Romans, the Roman control. Uh, Jerusalem was sieged for four years and then it was destroyed by the Romans. Uh, The Essenes, maybe someone else, hid the scrolls in in various caves. There were thousands, ten thousands of fragments that were found, thousands of manuscripts, and each book of the Bible was represented except for the book of Esther. And this is really important. One of the first scrolls to be discovered was from, uh, was the book of Isaiah, a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. Uh, There were other writings from first century Christians which really gives us insight into what first century Christians believed and um, and the discovery of the scriptures was really important because the oldest copy that we had of the book of Isaiah was a thousand years uh, newer than the one that was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there were people who believed, this is really important because while Christianity was still in its infancy, these Dead Sea Scrolls were hidden and then they were discovered in 1947. So all of that time, it's been believed that Christians have had the ability, it's been accused that Christians have had the ability to influence scripture because Christians were in control of it. But what they found out, and it took them like 20 years before they released all the information about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But what they found out was that there was no significant changes in the book of Isaiah. There were some grammatical changes, sentence structure changes, um, some word changes, but there was nothing that would would hurt the text at all. And Isaiah 9, 6 was there, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's not just a verse about a child being born, it's a verse about a child being born who's going to be called God. And that was in the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So was Isaiah 7, 14. Um, Behold, I give you a sign, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Uh, Also, all of the suffering servant passages, including Isaiah 53, are there, which foretell the suffering of the Messiah and that God will place upon him all of the iniquities of us all, which is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. The Old Testament foretold uh, these things. Only the book of Esther wasn't represented in it, and I don't think that says anything about Esther. There are some people who do, but I don't believe we get the canon of Scripture based on the Dead Sea Scrolls. We get the canon of Scripture based on the Old Testament, especially, on what the, on what the Jews felt what was Scripture, and then also the early church fathers, they more discovered what the Dead Sea Scrolls were than, um, than choosing what the Dead Sea Scrolls were. That is, they discovered the amazing aspects of what's there, or of what Scripture is, not the Dead Sea Scrolls, but what Scripture is. So the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls cannot be understated. It was believed, it took them like 20 years to release all the information on the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's found in 47, which just happened to be a year before Israel became a nation in 1948, which had all of the prophecies in it, or most of the prophecies in it, about Israel becoming a nation discovered the year before they became a nation in Israel were texts that had prophecies about Israel becoming a nation. I don't think that that is by coincidence. I don't think that that's by accident. And 
Um, it was thought when they were first found by critics that this was going to hurt Christianity, that they were going to discover all kinds of things in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were going to disprove Christianity, that um, things had been changed over the years. But what they found is none of that was true. There was nothing found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that would question um, what uh, Christianity was about. Now, not only were the Bible was the Bible found, but a lot of writings of early first century religious Jews, which gives us even more insight into what people thought during the days of Jesus. And that's why these things are so important because we get a glimpse into what their life was and what they thought, and that really helps us to understand it. I also love that there there's a verse in the Bible. There's a, a chapter in Psalms that is a certain kind of literature where each psalm, each verse starts with a letter of the alphabet. And we knew that a verse was missing because that part word of the alphabet was gone. But it was found in the Dead Sea Scroll uh, chapter in the book of Psalms. And they found that it said, the word of God is uh, is undeniable or the word of God is, is God stands behind his word. It was something to do with the word of God. I'll, I'll look it up and I'll start another Q&A with it because it's absolutely amazing. In essence, the missing verse that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls says that God's word is reliable and trustworthy. Absolutely amazing. So if you have any more questions about the Dead Sea Scroll, feel free, Dead Sea Scrolls, feel free to go ahead and submit them in our QA. As I said, this is our first QA of the year. Uh, really glad that you guys have joined us. Um, so we have a question here from Michael. Michael, uh, welcome. If you're here for the first time, really glad to have you here. Um, and he says, What are your thoughts about is it vacation? So I'm not sure, Michael, what you're asking. Should we as Christians take vacations? I'm, I'm not sure what it is. Um, if you could just give me a little bit more clarity, I would appreciate that. Uh, we'll go on to um, another question that we have here from Adrian. Adrian comes to us from Facebook. Uh, we are getting our questions from two places, basically really four, uh, but one on YouTube and two and three on Facebook. If you would like to join us on Saturdays and Wednesdays, then uh, go to Calvary Tucson YouTube and Calvary Chapel Facebook, and this is played on both of them. So Adrian says, hi, Pastor Robert, can you talk about Genesis 3.15? And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is the serpent? Satan. Who are the seed of the serpent? Does this bruise your head mean that Jesus will destroy Satan? What does the bruise of Jesus' heel mean? Thank you and God bless you. All right, I might bring your question back up here, Adrian, but because it's so big, I'm going to go ahead and take it off while I answer this. So this is the very first prophecy in all of Scripture. And it's during the curse, and it's during the portion of the curse that is given to Satan. And, uh, oh, excuse me, given to the woman, and I will put I don't know if it's between the woman or Satan now that I think about it. It's, it's God responding to the curses. Remember, the woman had a curse because the fall the man did. The ground would, would give thorns and thistles. And Satan did that. He would go on his belly. And um, in the middle of that is, is Genesis 3.15. And let me go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and pull that up here. I keep on uh, getting rid of it. So I'm going to go ahead and pull it up here and I want to read it in context. I think that that will help us. Um, yeah, so um, let's see. All right. Yeah, so it is during the curse um, to, 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 to the serpent. And it says, um, and let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you so you can read along with me. It says, um, because you have done this, you are cursed more than the cattle and more than the beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat, the, um, eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Which is an absolutely, absolutely amazing passage. Um, my mom used to tell me that this was the woman, that this was the reason that women were afraid of snakes because of that passage. Um, this is when I was, I grew up in the Methodist church and my mom said that and love my mom, um, but it's not the reason women are afraid of snakes. God, plenty of guys are afraid of snakes as well. Um, so the fulfillment is 
Jesus, being the seed of the woman, was able to crush the serpent or make an open spectacle of him or destroy him, as the New Testament tells us, at the cross. He was able to crush the serpent's head and he had a bruised heel. Because he was resurrected from the dead, it was only a bruised heel. Otherwise, it would be death. There's been a lot made about, we know what the seed of the woman is. So the seed of the woman, the word seed is descendant. Later on, God would tell Abraham, one of your descendants coming from Sarah, coming from Isaac, is going to bless all nations. These are promises of the Messiah. And this passage is a promise that the Messiah would be destroyed. The seed of the serpent has been misused and abused. Um, there are those that will try to bring in um, certain weird and strange ideas based on uh, descendants of Satan. Remember, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Doesn't mean they were literal seeds of the devil. It meant that it was an ongoing work that the enemy was doing. And the reference to, he shall destroy your seed. I would put enmity between you, um, the woman, and between the seed and her seed would be a reference to the descendants, people that weren't literal descendants of Satan, but they were like the scribes and Pharisees who were of their father, the devil. And, and they are enemies of the true uh, Messiah and enemies of the work that God would have them to do. And, and I, won't, I don't even want to go in to some of the false teachings that people get out of this, that people try to bring out of this seed of the serpent. Uh, like I said, we know that this is people who are following Satan and they are descendants of the serpent and they there will be enmity between them and the head of the serpent, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's said directly to the serpent, not to the descendants. So you have the Messiah coming and you have men who are of, the, of Satan, their father, and they battle against Satan. And I think you see the fulfillment of this passage um, right there where Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. Yeah, he's giving them uh, that kind, um, he's giving them uh, directly that they're following Satan and living after him. So um, I hope that is helpful. Uh, Adrian, it's a great prophecy. It speaks of the Messiah. It's where prophecy starts in the Bible. We see the fulfillment at Jesus on the cross and um, that's the seed of the serpent, all right? So we have another question here from Nancy. And uh, Nancy says, by his stripes we are healed, not met physically, but spiritually. Uh, yes, so we're talking about Isaiah 53. And um, as it's talking about Jesus being, being crushed or bruised for our iniquity, he was ch the chastisement of our peace was upon him, meaning that he was beaten for our peace. Not only did Jesus die on the cross for our sins, but Jesus also went through what he went through in the suffering for us. Um, he was chastised, meaning he was beaten for our peace. So Jesus had his peace robbed from him that night so we would have peace. By his stripes, we are healed. Um, ultimately, I do believe that that is a reference to us being healed in eternity. Um, Revelation tells us that in heaven, there are no more lame, no more suffering, um, no more sorrow. Uh, that everyone is healed. And I believe that is a work of Jesus on the cross. When Peter talks about this in one of the books of Peter, he puts it in, in the category of sin. He talks about him being beaten, that we could be healed spiritually from our sins. So there is a way in which this passage also means that we are healed from sin. Sin is destructive, sin destroys us, it hurts us. And there is a way in which this is talking about sin. And we know that from the passage in Peter. One of the best ways to determine what the Bible is saying is to cross-reference it with the Bible. You compare scripture to scripture. And when you compare this passage to the quote in the New Testament, then you gain some more. It does not mean that a Christian is never going to be sick. I've heard people say that Jesus was, was whipped 39 times and that he, um, there are 39 main sicknesses and that, um, you know, you turn on TV today, right? And you hear the guy say on TV, God doesn't want you sick. And you say, what a coincidence, God doesn't want me sick either. Tonight in our study, 
Uh, we have a church service at six o'clock. Welcome you guys to join us. We're talking about Philippians chapter two, where Paul's talking about the team that he has, and he talks about Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus brings him a gift from the church in Philippi to Paul while he is in chains in Rome. And Epaphroditus gets sick and almost dies. And, and, God, and, and, and Paul talks about God healing him to save him from sorrow. So you have Epaphroditus with Paul who actually healed people, um, who actually raised people from the dead. But instead of healing Epaphroditus, he prays for him and then he recovers, it seems naturally. Um, and you have him telling Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. Timothy had wine problems. Why would you take wine for your stomach? Because if you're drinking water that's contaminated, the alcohol in wine would purify it. And so he didn't talk to him about if you had more faith, if you believe more, you would be healed. So I'm just kind of covering how people misuse this verse. Um, really, it's talking about spiritually and he was, he was with stripes for our healing in eternity that w when we are in heaven, there is no more sick, there is no more lame. All right. Thank you, Nancy. I really appreciate uh, your question. We have another question here from Jari. Jari says, um, question, how can I walk... Um, more in humility as a believer. Also, why did Jesus say these this kind didn't come out but through prayer and fasting? Are there bosses levels of demons? All right, you got two questions in there, Jari. Um, the first is how can I walk more in, more in humility as a believer? Um, so the Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up you humble yourself. And that's how I pray. That's how I pray for me. That's how I pray for the church that I pastor. It's how I pray for, for, for you, that you would humble yourself. I never pray, Lord, humble us because, well, God's got no problem doing that. If we're prideful, God's going to humble us. But if we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. If we are prideful, then God will bring us down. And so the way you humble yourself is to ask God to humble yourself. You also don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. That's a good self-examination because you might have a position or because God might use you or for whatever reason, you might think you're better than other people. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. The Bible also says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. So we become prideful when we do things to be seen by men. We become prideful when, um, uh, when we want to do stuff in order to to bolster ourselves. It also says, let nothing be done by pride. So examine yourself and see if the motive of what you're doing, anything you're doing is pride and then examine it. And I say, humble yourself, make yourself lower, make sure it's not a false humility. Someone says, Hey, you really blessed me. Well, you know, it's not really me. Um, that's kind of sickening that false humility and you can easily spot it. But real humility says God is great. I'm not. God does great things. I don't. And doesn't try to exalt himself, doesn't try to lift himself up, but makes himself available to be used by God in any way that he possibly can. So I think that's the way you humble yourself, Jari. You, you put away selfish ambition. You put other people's interest above your own interest. You begin living for other people. You look for opportunities to exalt God. Jesus said, when you do your good works, do them in such a way that when men see your good works, they glorify your father who is in heaven. So we want God in heaven to be glorified and not us. Now, why did Jesus say this kind um, comes out only by prayer and fasting? So Jesus had been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes back down with his disciples. His disciples have tried to cast a demon out of a boy. They aren't able to do it. And then Jesus cast the demon out. And later on, the disciples say to him, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, here's what I think about that. I think um, prayer and fasting doesn't give you more power spiritually. Um, when I first read that, when I was a new believer, I thought the more I pray and the more I fast, the more spiritual power I have and the more that I'm going to be able to command demons. I'm not sure that's what the passage means. In fact, I lean against that now. I think what he's saying is, is that if you really care about someone, you really care about someone. 
then and you fast for them, which is grieving, which is a type of grieving. Um, when you grieve, you don't eat. People would fast and pray. And I, I, when, when I talk about fasting, I believe that we should, should fast. We should be struck by something. It shouldn't just be, you know what, I'm going to fast today. It should be, you know what, they're killing babies in America. And I'm going to fast for that. And I'm going to call out to God. And you've got that very thing. And so it would mean that you would really care about this boy, that you would fast for him, that you would pray. And, and when you feel like someone has a demonic hold on someone, fasting and praying can be good because you're really caring about them. And the Bible says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. So you fervently seek God and do the very things that he's calling you to do. And you pray for them. And I believe that that's the power. Are there bosses, levels of demons? Um, three questions in one, um, in, in, in one question, Jari. Um, yes, the Bible says in uh, Ephesians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts in heavenly places. Principalities is a word that's used for princes. You find it in the book of Daniel. For um, Michael is called the great prince of Israel. He stands up in the last days. And um, then there's the Prince of Greece that Gabriel fought against in Daniel chapter 9 and in chapter 8, I think. And so these are principalities and then powers, and they seem to be a ranking of demons that are there that we fight against. Um, the spiritual warfare that you and I are called to is that we are to put on the entire armor of God and then stand. So a lot of people come up and they write books on how to fight these different levels of demons. And I, and I don't think that there's any of that. I think that we put our armor on, we stand, we pray, and we stand and we do the work that God's called us to do and the gates of hell won't prevail against us, as Jesus said. And the church doesn't march on the gates of hell. The gates of hell, um, the gates of hell are stationary. Excuse me, the church marches on the gates of hell by the gospel of Jesus Christ being given the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail. It's a promise of success to the church. Um, the Bible says, if you are in Christ, you don't sin and the evil one doesn't touch you. Jesus said, behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means hurt you. All right, so thank you very much, Jari, for your questions. I really appreciate it. I hope you're having a great new year. We have a question from Psychman. Good to see you, Psychman. Um, Psychman says, Matthew 11:30. I was explaining why this was so very true last night. Do you think would make an awesome hot topic? What is uh, what's what is so light and easy to be a Christian? So Matthew 11:30 is um, coming to me. All of you who um, are weary and heavy laden, I think. I'm going to go ahead and pull it up because I want to make sure. I'll get it up on the screen for you. 11.30. I'm pretty sure that that is uh, the passage. Yep. All right. Let me go ahead and get it up on the screen for you and we'll read it together. So um, here, red letter, right? Red letter edition. Um, verse 28, come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Um, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, so thank you, Psych Man. I appreciate your question. Um, yeah, I think it would make a great hot topic. Um, there are so many that I would like to do, um, but yeah, talking about, you know, some people say, being a Christian is so hard, the burden of the Lord is on me. In the Old Testament, God said, stop saying the burden of the Lord is upon you. I haven't put any burden on you. Um, we are to bring all of our worry and our care to him. He is our Sabbath, right? Hebrews chapter four. So Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And he gave this invitation, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's available to anyone who would come on to call upon his name and come unto him. And it really and truly is. Um, it's not difficult to be a Christian. It doesn't mean, psych man, that we aren't called to do some things that are hard. Because every so often, you got to do something you don't want to do. You got to do something that's hard. And we understand that. But what it does mean is that our life in Christ is, 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 
truly free and it's rest in him and he is our Sabbath and it truly is light and it's very, very powerful. And I, and I do absolutely love that verse and I love to go to it um, when I'm feeling particularly uh, particular hardship in my own life. All right, so we have a, a question here from uh, Pat. Pat comes to us from Facebook. Pat, good to see you. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you're watching and it's your first time here, welcome. If you have a question, you can submit it to the comment section below. Put, put the word question or a question mark or a Q in front of it so we can identify it as a question easily. And then write out your question. We'll bring it on and we'll take a look at it. All right. So Pat says, a friend of mine says, um, Mary not only gave birth to Jesus by immaculate conception, but she herself was born by immaculate conception. I asked them where in the Bible and was told they would not say, what are your thoughts on this? All right, so the doctrine of immaculate conception does not refer to Jesus. This is a Catholic doctrine that Mary was born sinless. There is no passage in the Bible to say that. In fact, the Bible would say otherwise. Mary, when she sings her song in the book of Luke, she sings of the need for a savior. She wouldn't have needed a savior if she didn't have any sin. Um, the Catholic Church sometimes goes so far as to call her a co-redemptress. They believe that she rede redeemed along with Jesus. In some churches, uh, it's down in Mexico, uh, other places in South America, there's Mary on the back of the cross, nailed to the cross, and Jesus on the front. And that's their thoughts of being a co-redemptress. Where do they get these ideas from that aren't biblical? Because a Catholic who believes everything right about Jesus, the Trinity, um, Jesus being God, all of those things, but also has a lot of things they add because of tradition, and because of the extra apocrypha books that are added to the Old Testament. These were not accepted by the Jews. The Jews didn't accept them because when you read them, they're weird. And you get the idea of purgatory, a defense for purgatory from them and some of the others. And I'm not sure they defend the Immaculate Conception through these. I don't know that that's the case. I don't think it is. Um, but they, uh, someone who's Catholic will, Roman Catholic, will put the Bible some in Roman Catholicism, so certainly not all, but some will put the Bible and tradition on the same level. And they believe that the tradition of the church and the, the papacy, the, the commands that come from the papacy are, are without error as well. So they put it the same way. This is what upset Martin Luther so much that he pounded the, the, the 95 thesis on the door of Wittenberg and um, the Reformation came up with sola scriptura, scripture alone, nothing else. And so, um, asking Mary to pray for you, which is praying to Mary. People say, I don't pray to Mary, I ask Mary to pray for me. How are you asking her? You're asking her, Mary, pray for me. That's, you're praying to Mary. Praying to the saints, um, lighting candles to the saints. All of these are problematic. Um, how God will judge an individual that does those, but receives Jesus as their savior, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say it's what you believe that's wrong that keeps you out of heaven. It says it's what you do in receiving Christ, John 1, 12, that, that gets you into heaven. So I am not quick to condemn someone who is a Roman Catholic or, or, or in Orthodox Church or anything else that would believe these different kinds of things based on tradition. I will be careful to say, if you think sacraments save you, which the church teaches, has taught throughout centuries, and some churches teach that today, some don't. Uh, Catholic churches do, some don't. Some priests do, some priests don't. But if you believe it's the sacrament that saves you, it's not. You're believing something false. You're giving people a false sense of hope. It's like Christians today who say baptism saves you or speaking in tongues saves you. No, it doesn't. It's believing in Jesus. It's receiving him. It's inviting him in. It's turning from the life of living not for yourself and turning towards God that causes you to be born again. And none of these things um, do so. So that's the reason, Mary, that they would not give you a place in the Bible where it says that. But you and I have the Bible as our authority. They don't. So I have a friend of mine who's a lawyer. He's Catholic. Um, I think he's part of the Swiss Guard. And he loves to argue about it. But I'll tell him often, we can't 
we can't argue. It doesn't, it doesn't work because we're working with different authorities. If my authority is the Bible and he tries to defend something by tradition, it, then we're, we're not going to come to the same place. We just have to come to a place and say we're going to disagree because he's got a different set of authority. He's got a different authority than I do. The authority that I have is the Word of God. Um, like I said, I'm careful not to judge them, not to say that they're not Christians, but I'm also careful to say if you don't trust in Christ as a, as a Catholic, you will not make it into heaven. If you don't trust in Christ as a Calvary Chapelite or a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Methodist, you're not going to make it into heaven. So it's not just them. It is everyone who doesn't believe. All right? So thank you very much, Pat. I appreciate your question. Good to have you um, here on our podcast. So um, we have a question from Polly. Polly, it's good to see you. A lot of, got a lot of new people here today. If you're new here, welcome. Uh, you can submit your question by writing the word question or comment in front of your question and then write out your question and um, we'll get to it as it comes in. Um, Polly asked, do angels walk among us? And she speaks of Hebrews 13.2. I would have gone to a different verse to try to back that up. But let me just take a look at what Hebrews 13.2 says. Um, I would go to the last verse in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 13.2. Um, let's see. Hebrew, Hebrews 13.2. Let me just bring this up here on the screen. Um, maybe it's not the right reference that you had. Let me look here. So um, Hebrews 13, I just want to make sure this is 13. Yep, Hebrews 13, 2. Remember the prisoners and chains of them, those who are mistreated, since you yourself are one body also. So I don't think um, that's the passage that you wanted. Um, I'm going to go to another one that I think will be more helpful. And you guys, I guess I didn't take it down here. Woo! Um, so talking about angels, so uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is all about the, superior or the superiority of Jesus over angels. Uh, to which of the angels did he say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, therefore God, your God has anointed you. God calls him God. God tells him that he is superior to the angels throughout all of this. And then it tells us who the angels are in the last verse, which is verse 14, which says, are they not all ministering spirits sent to minister to uh, for those who have inherited salvation. They are servants for those who inherit salvation, which is, uh, which is pretty amazing that Jesus became a little lower than the angels and angels are a little higher than humans, but God chose us to present the gospel with all of our weaknesses and all of our frailty, more powerful angels are serving us. And I believe they strengthen us and I think they serve us in all kinds of ways. So do angels walk among us? The answer to that would be yes. Um, I believe they, they, they work behind the scenes. I think that we don't see them a lot and that God doesn't have them lifted up a lot. He's given an us, in the, an us, of an us enough in the Bible to know that they are working with us. They're ministering to us. This ought to give us a lot more confidence when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. While I'm preaching the gospel, angels are ministering to me. And that is incredibly powerful to me. Um, Jesus talked about the children, the angels of the children. So it seems that guardian angels for children is a biblical thing. Um, uh, the Bible talks about de um, demons trembling at the name of Jesus. Um, so they're around and, and as well, but we have the angelic host that is on our side and working with us, no wonder we have such great confidence. So thank you, Polly. Um, they're all ministering spirits sent to minister. And the word minister means servant. They're servants. They're servants for us. I'm not sure if I were God that I wouldn't have reversed that and had humans be ministers to angels taking the gospel out. But God gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to be witnesses, comes upon us. Um, God gives us his word that we can preach it, which is alive and active and gets in the hearts of people. When we come to Jesus and drink out of us, God says torrents of living water, which is the Holy Spirit flows out of us everywhere that we go, and then angels help us. How could we not be successful? No wonder G Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. How could we not be successful in the very work that God has called us to do? Thank you, Pauline. I really appreciate it. Good to see you.
Um, so we have a question here from Catherine. Uh, Catherine joins us from Facebook as well. Catherine says, when someone tells you you're not living your life right with Christ unless you are fasting for 48 to 72 hours regularly, is this even accurate? What about people whose health issues will pass if they don't eat? So Catherine, here's the thing. There are people out there who are extremely legalistic and they want to put trips on you. Sound like I'm from the 70s. They want to put trips on you, man. They want to lay their trip on you. Um, but that's what they want to do. They're like the Pharisees who laid heavy burdens on people that they themselves wouldn't even lift. Fasting is an outward sign. It's an outward, it's something you do outwardly. Jesus said, when you fast, don't walk, walk around looking all sad. Don't do it for show. And, and so people will fast and then they'll claim that other people don't have any power or that they're not able to do what God wants them to do because they have not fasted. Just not true. I do believe we should fast and we should fast for spiritual reasons. I said it earlier, Catherine, uh, in, in this podcast that fasting is like grieving. When I am struck by something, when something causes me to grieve, something in the nation, something in the world, then I fast and pray based on that. That's when, that's my trigger for fasting. And no one can tell you've got to fast for 48 or 72 hours. Daniel fasted pleasant food. You could fast, um, you, you could fast pleasant food. You could just have water and bread and fast for a day. You're just saying, God, I'm giving up. I'm surrendering. I'm sacrificing because I care about this and I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray. Um, I also find Catherine that fasting, you could fast for a morning, you could fast for a day and only eat supper. Um, you could eat breakfast and fast for the rest of the day. Uh, you could fast all day. You could fast a couple days in a row. You could fast 48 to 72 hours. I find the more I practice fasting, the easier it is for me. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing when it comes to sacrifice. But I've, I've found that I can fast better the more often I do it. And I just think when, when you haven't fasted and, and you haven't done it for a while, missing a meal is hard, much less fasting for a couple of days. So I would suggest, Catherine, that if you want to fast, first of all, don't do it because somebody lays a trip on you, okay? Do it because you want to. Do it because something strikes you. Begin by fasting breakfast. Maybe fast breakfast and lunch. Maybe fast breakfast and lunch and a, eat a late lunch and then a late dinner. Maybe fa fast breakfast, lunch, and, and then only eat dinner. Fast all day, then only eat dinner. Do that for a while and then fast an entire day. Get up in the morning and don't eat and, and, and seek God and pray. And I believe that you will find this as a practice much more easy. Um, this is just extremely practical when you're looking at fasting. So Jesus did say, when you fast, and he talked about the disciples not fasting because the bridegroom was there. They were rejoicing. That's the purpose of fasting is grieving. And, and so you grieve something that happens and then you fast. All right, so don't let anyone lay, don't let anybody tell you, you gotta read two, three chapters of the Bible a day. You gotta read through the Bible in a year, otherwise you're not a real Christian or you don't, you don't really love Christ. Um, you can't be right with Christ unless you fast for so long. You gotta go to church every time the doors are open. They have all of their rules. Let them live by their rules. They wanna live that legalistic Christian lifestyle, let them live it. They stand and fall before Jesus. We have freedom not to be under that kind of legalism. We are under Christ. And I, I'm gonna give you some really strong advice now. Don't let someone put you under that kind of a burden. That you, you could say to them, I believe that I'm supposed to fast and I will be doing that, but I don't believe I have to fast in order to be right with Christ. N nothing says that. There's nothing in the Bible that would even begin to suggest that, Catherine. All right, so thank you very much for your question and welcome. By the way, I don't know that we've had a question from you before. Um, really good to have you here and asking your question. So we've got a really long question from Amber Sky. Um, so let me go ahead and bring her in here. And all right, so I'm just gonna go ahead and read this. Um, Amber says, so I've encountered Torah keepers lately. 
even have friends whose path with Christ is leading them to Old Testament laws. I was told Jesus is the Torah and I disagreed and was told that I was offending God. Can you clarify what Jesus was talking about when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Does this statement from Christ apply to Old Testament commandments and laws? Also, I celebrated Christmas and was told it's worshiping God as heathens do. What is your thoughts on celebrating Jesus's birth on Christmas? All right, let me take these one at a time. I may bring your question back up online, but because it's so large, I'm gonna go ahead and take it off. Um, so first of all, the Torah keepers um, who tell you that you are not pleasing God because you're not keeping the law. These are the descendants of those that Paul was writing against in Galatians and Hebrews. Uh, they are trying to lay a trip on you. Just like they were trying to circumcise them, they're trying to get you to keep the law. And as I said to Catherine about fasting, don't let anybody lay their trip on you. I'll say it to you as well. Don't let anyone lay their trip on you. We have freedom in Christ. We are the most free, the Bible says. Only use your freedom for edification and not for opportunities to sin. It doesn't say anything. If someone wants to keep the Sabbath day, if someone wants to keep the, the um, kosher laws, if someone wants to try to keep the Torah and the Old Testament, they're free to do that. If they think that they're closer to God because of it, they're wrong. We're following Jesus in this great freedom. And the Bible tells us we are not under the law. The Bible tells us that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. And once we came to Christ, then we no longer need the law. Romans tells us that the law is weak. It's not bad, Paul says, but it's weak in that it cannot save. But Hebrews, which deals with this whole issue as well, the temple was still around when the book of Hebrews was written. There were Christians who were under persecution because of their Christianity. It was not sanctioned by the Romans, but Judaism was. So they were wanting to go back to the temple. And author of Hebrews says, you have a, a, an eternal high priest and you want to go back to an earthly one. And the law has changed out of necessity. I'm quoting Hebrews. The law has changed out of necessity. So when you study Hebrews, Galatians, Romans, uh, you find other, other passages. Um, Colossians says, don't let anybody judge you concerning Sabbaths or meals or foods. It tells us not to do it. Don't let anybody enter in. I don't know that I could feel any more passionate about this topic because I believe that these people are bringing you back under bondage. Paul fought against them in the New Testament. We fight against them today. They believe they're okay because they're keeping certain laws. We are not under laws. We're under relationships. And these kind of teachings are, um, are bad or poor. Um, I just want to make sure I answered the, that question. Um, can you clarify what Jesus was talking about when he says, you love me if you keep my commandments? Yeah, Jesus was talking about his commandments, his commandments. They tried to say Jesus is the Torah, right? And so all the, but everything that's in the Torah is, um, is of Jesus. That kind of jumping through hoops will tell you they don't have any other passages that help them, any clear passages. They've got to go back and make, try to make this connection uh, between what is the Old Testament and who Jesus is. We, and, and so will people who say you have to be baptized to be saved as well. That Jesus said, go out and baptize in my name. So if you're not baptized, then you're not, you're not saved. So they try to do these, these, these kind of, they, they, they mishandle the word of God to try to justify what they say. And it's just wrong. And I would just encourage you not to let anybody try to put you under that kind of a law. Now, celebrating Christmas. So they will say, well, you have paganism, which had Saturnalia, which is a winter solstice celebration. We don't know when Jesus was born, probably not born in December, probably not born near the winter solstice. The winter solstice is around December 15th, okay, around there. Um, there, was a, there was a Saturnalia that people will go and they'll try to make comparisons. They'll talk about what Saturnalia was and they'll, they'll make comparisons about trees and bring green inside and, and hanging decorations and they'll, they'll make these comparisons. But when you study what Saturnalia is, then you see that there is no comparison to how we as Christians celebrate Christmas and how they did. The Bible never gives us a commandment that we're supposed to celebrate Christmas, but that doesn't mean I'm not free to do it. 
When the Bible is silent on something, we can be silent on it. And if I decide that I want to put up a tree and that I want that tree to represent the, and the lights on it to represent the light of Christ, I can do that. I'm not bringing a Tammuz tree into my house. The Tammuz, the tree they brought in was a totem pole, like a totem pole that they would worship. It was idol. It was an idol they brought into their house. We're not bringing idols into our houses when we put greenery around a fireplace hearth. Uh, we, we are not, um, we are not serving God. And when it comes to pagan, we are not serving pagans. Are we not serving paganism? When it comes to paganism, there are all kinds of things that we use to talk about paganism, like days of the week, months of the year, January's from the god Janus. And you could say, well, you use January, you're a pagan. Mm, I don't think you are. Um, and so um, I do have a hot topic on, um, I think it's, should peg, uh, is celebrating holidays pagan. I want to clarify that and do one just on Christmas in the future, probably somewhere around where we can release it around next Christmas time because this question comes back up again. Um, don't let don't let people rob that away from you either. All right. Um, and I'm going to look here again just to make sure I got it all covered. Amber, don't let anybody steal from you what is a joy for you and what you are doing innocently towards God. We live in a world that has been influenced by paganism all around us and we don't use the, the day January or Saturday Saturday to speak of the god Saturn. We don't do that. We don't use Saturn, the planet, that way. And neither do these people. They're just finding ways that they can try to lay trips on people and feel superior and feel like they are they're okay with God because of these works when none of these things make them okay with God, right? Keeping the law doesn't make you good with God. We know that. It's being right with Jesus. And, and not celebrating Christmas doesn't make you right with God. This is what the Jehovah Witnesses have been saying for years, and some Christians grab onto it and, and teach it themselves, and I do not believe that it is true in any way, shape, or form. All right, so thank you very much, Amber. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see, so um, follow-up question by Jari. Uh, Jari asked earlier if uh, about the where it says the stripes we are healed. Is it still okay for us to use by his stripes were healed? Certainly. Um, we use it to speak of our sins. That's what Peter did when Peter when Peter referenced this verse and in the book, one of the books of Peter, and also that we are healed in all of eternity. Whatever ailments I have, whatever difficulties I have, I'm not going to have in heaven. And it's by his stripes that we're healed. So yes, Jesus did take away our illnesses, give us eternity. Everything that he did that night was done for us. He carried our sorrows and griefs. He was beaten for us by his stripes were healed and he was crucified and, and, and shed his blood for our iniquities as foretold by the scriptures. So thank you very much uh, for your follow-up question. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Renee. Renee, it's good to have you here. Also, if you're joining us for the very first time, we're really glad you joined us. We do this most Wednesdays and most Saturdays. Um, you can submit your questions by writing them in the comment section. Put a question or a question mark in front of them. We'll take them in the order that they come in. If we don't get to them, I look at the questions that are submitted later for first questions and future Q&As. So go ahead and write it out. You can also log in next time and, and, and ask uh, your question uh, there as well. All right. So first of all, um, Renee, good to see you. Good to have you here with us in this new year. Renee says, if no one is without sin that we sin every day, if no one is without sin that we sin every day, yep, how can you distinguish the difference between someone that is saved or unsaved? Thank you, Pastor Robert. All right. So thank you, Renee. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, the you not sinning anymore is not a sign of your salvation. First, John 1, 8, if anyone says they have no sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. Then the next verse, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if someone says, I don't sin anymore, I'm a Christian, then, hey, you're, the truth isn't in you. You're deceiving yourself and you're lying. You're, right, right now, you're lying about it and, and that is a sin. Um, there are all kinds of struggles. There are things that we don't even know. The Old Testament uh, psalmist said, Lord, reveal to me 
my hidden faults that have dominion over me. You can even have a hidden fault that has dominion over you in your life. And there are things that I do that I don't even know that I'm doing that are sinful. The Bible tells us what the fruit is for those who are saved, and that is love, maturity, um, caring for people, taking care of the needy, the poor. Those are fruits of being saved, not having a lack of sin. Now, on the other end, the Bible says that no fornicator, no adulterer, and it gives this list of sins in Galatians, and it says none who practice such things will inherit the kingdom of God. So if someone practices sin, so if I have unconfessed, unrepented sin in my life, and I've just accepted it and I am practicing it, then no one's going to inherit the kingdom of God. So we repent and we turn from it. We try to walk with him um, in purity and holiness. And we struggle with sin because of our flesh, right? The Bible says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But the flesh struggles against the spirit so that we don't do the things that we wish. So there's a struggle going on inside of me, but it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not I'm saved. So if someone has unconfessed, unrepentant sin, they're having an affair, they won't, to return, they won't turn from it, they believe that they're okay because they're having it, they're deceiving themselves, and um, that's a sign that they may not be saved. And certainly if they keep it up and don't repent, it's a sign that they aren't because they won't inherit the kingdom of God. So yeah, the statement itself is wrong, but there is a way in that it is true and that's why there's church discipline when someone's living in a lifestyle, an unrepentant lifestyle, that you remove them, that you might be able to bring them back to Christ, make sure that they have the right relationship with Christ. But no, no let no one tell you that you're not saved if you don't, if you sin, because all of us do. All right. So thank you very much. I, um, I appreciate uh, your question. Um, Renee, thank you for that. Uh, we have another question here, I believe. Let me take a look here. So we have another question from Fresh Start 2022. I love your uh, your YouTube channel name, Fresh Start 2022. Jesus, God is a God of fresh starts, right? Um, how did Catholics come about? Where do they get purgatory from? Um, so thank you, Fresh Start, for your question. Um, Let's start with the purgatory question. I believe that there is something in um, one of the Apocrypha books that they reference for purgatory. It's not biblical at all. It comes from tradition, and I believe it comes from one of the Apocrypha books, which we don't accept as scripture. Um, and I told you that reasons why, and I could talk more about that if you want me to. Um, but that's where they get purgatory from. Um, how do Catholics come about? Well, I think that if you were to ask a Catholic, they would say, we have been, we, we, we trace Catholicism all the way back to the early church. However, the first 300 years, the church was persecuted by Rome. And then when Constantine made Christianity the religion of Rome, then a lot of weirdness came in. The papacy started. They're going to trace the papacy back through the first 300 years but none of them were called popes and you don't find any new t um, any um, church fathers that write it in such, a, in such a way. So the Catholic Church is going to claim that they, go, they trace their way all the way back to Peter and uh, Paul, Jesus, um, and the writings in the New Testament, which is what we claim. So I grew up Methodist, then I went to charismatic churches, Pentecostal churches, settled in Calvary Chapel. And I believe that I came to point of, of receiving Christ and then took the word of God that was given by the apostles and by that brought by the Holy Spirit, and now I believe it. And what happened in church history doesn't affect me very much. I, I study it. I want to know what people believed. I think it's helpful to do that. But just because somebody in church history believes something that isn't in the Bible doesn't mean that I should believe it. And I don't put a ton of weight on church history at all. A lot of people do. They'll say, no church fathers taught that, which is just such a, can I, can I say this? That's such an arrogant statement. First of all, you don't know all the writings of the church fathers. You are not an expert to be able to make a statement, none of the church fathers taught this. 
there was a lot of different things taught. And just because the church fathers taught it, we don't believe it. There are a lot of things they taught that were wrong. And there were a lot of things that they didn't teach that were right. And so when people put weight on the church fathers, it becomes a problem. And so to me, Roman Catholicism started in 300 when the church joined Rome. And it brought a lot of problems with it. It has nothing to do with a, someone who's Roman Catholic today that invites Jesus into their life that truly is born again. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're Roman Catholic and you aren't, you can't make it into heaven. If you are, you can. So that has nothing to do with that. But it does have to do with what I would see as being true church history and what they would see as being true church history. And, and we can disagree on it. So if, if there's someone watching this and you're Catholic and you have a true faith in Christ, you believe in him and you're born again, then we can disagree on what church history is. That's all right. We, we, we don't have to agree on everything. That's not what makes us saved or not saved. All right. So thank you very much, Fresh Start. I appreciate it. Looks like we have time for one or two more questions. If you're watching with us for the very first time, really glad you're here. Um, you, can, you can join this podcast every Wednesdays and Saturdays at from three to four. You can submit your questions to the comment section and we'll take them in order. Put the word question or question mark or the Q in front of it so we can identify it as a question. So the question from Michael is, um, will the Antichrist come up out of Europe during the seven year tribulation? Some Christians seem to be reacting, um, reacting, uh, retracting, oh, this belief today. Okay, yes. Um, thanks, Michael. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so there are those who believe that when the church is taken out of the way, that the the that what will be left will be a majority of Muslims, and that the Antichrist will be Muslim. So there are plenty of people who believe that today. Um, I don't know. I I haven't studied it enough to really just reject that thought outright. Um, the Bible says that the prince this is Daniel chapter nine, of the people who destroy the temple will make a covenant with many for one week and that's the 70th week, that's the last seven year period. That would connect him to Rome. The Jews also seem to receive him as the Messiah which would connect him to Israel. Um, as far as the ethnicity of the Antichrist, I'm not, I'm not sure that I have enough information to really say that. I, he will be the ruler of a one world government. That one world government is a, is, is, is clay and iron mixed together. The iron legs in, in Daniel spoke of the Roman empire. The iron and clay is a rebirth of the Roman empire with 10 kings. And you find these 10 kings in Revelation and Daniel and other places. And seven of them are destroyed. There's one that replaces it and that's the Antichrist. He seems to be connected to Rome. I don't know that he could be connected to Rome if he were Muslim, if he were the, um, I was trying to think of it, um, the name on it, um, the, the, the tenth Imam maybe, um, Joel Rosenberg has m a much better grasp on that aspect of what's taking place. But the largest religion in the world is Christianity, which is a couple billion. And then the second is right behind it is Muslim. And so when the church is taken out of the way, who knows how many people will be taken, but some believe that that will leave Islam as the largest um, religion in the world and that the Antichrist will come out of that. So there seems to be some retracting that. I don't know that that's absolutely necessary and I need to spend some more time studying it. I don't have 100% confidence in the answer um, as to who the Antichrist is. All right, but we have some clues uh, that are given in scripture. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate your question. There are just certain things that we want to pour more time into and really look at and uh, really dive into to find out what they are. So uh, we have a question here from Erica, and this will be our last question for today. Thank you guys for joining us. We really appreciate it. Is separation between parent and child, such as how common parental alienation has become worldwide, in times biblical prophecy. Um, again, that's an interesting question, Erica. I don't know. Uh, I'm not familiar with why someone would say that. I'm 
I'm trying to think of a prophecy that would say it. I've never heard that before. Doesn't mean it's not true. Um, it's something that I would love to look into and see a little bit clearer or, or, or a little bit more. All right, so I don't know. I know the character of people. I know being disobedient to parents is, right? Because that's in the New Testament. Men in the last days will be lovers of themselves, disobedient to parents, um, haters of God, lovers of themselves. It gives us a list there. First of Second Timothy chapter 4. Um, on what the character of people will be like in the last days, and maybe that's where they get it from. Now that I look at it, I think that. Um, but maybe there's some other passages. So I'll take some time uh, to look this up, all right? So it's good to see you guys. Really glad to be able to spend this time with you here. I hope you guys are blessed. I hope that this year becomes a real blessing to you. May God bless you this year, all right? The Lord bless you and keep you. I'm gonna go ahead and sign out. We will see you guys.